You're listening to TIP. So when it comes to rental income, my job is fairly easy. There's not really a, a significant difference or any difference really, whether you hold your rentals personally or in an LLC. In this week's episode, I talk with tax expert Amanda Hahn about which tax deductions real estate investors often miss, how combining house hacking with tax deductions is a double bonus, why you need to be proactive with your taxes, what is the CPA's job versus what is your job, what tax mistakes real estate investors make, how to write off your travel, kids, and possibly even your girlfriend or boyfriend, and much, much more. Amanda Hahn is a tax strategist, CPA, business owner, and real estate investor. She has two highly rated books on taxes, one for beginners and one that is a bit more advanced, and has been featured in Money Magazine, Talks at Google, CNBC's Smart Money, and of course, Bigger Pockets. When you get into real estate, or even when you're considering getting into real estate, one of the biggest benefits that is often touted over other asset classes that you could potentially invest in is the tax benefits that real estate can provide. In this episode, you'll learn all about different tax strategies that can help an individual real estate investor like yourself, or even hurt you if you don't do it right, all directly from a great real estate focused, which is important, a real estate focused CPA and investor herself. I hope you guys enjoy the episode and that it even saves you some money on your taxes. Now, let's dive right in. You're listening to Real Estate Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful investors from various real estate investing niches to help educate you on your real estate investing journey. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Real Estate 101 podcast. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, we have the tax professional and tax expert, Amanda Hahn. Amanda, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thanks for having me, Robert. I'm really excited to be here. We're recording this in the midst of tax season. So taxes are top of mind for me and probably a lot of people listening to the show. But more than it just being tax season, I've been focusing quite a bit on my taxes and trying to get a just get better in that area. So I'm looking forward to diving into all of the different tax topics we're going to cover today. In your book for beginners, it says, as real estate investors, we are all very good at writing off real estate specific items such as mortgage interest, insurance premiums, property taxes, management fees, repairs, and maintenance. However, what most investors forget to write off are the overhead expenses they may incur because of their rental property. What are some examples of overhead expenses that real estate investors commonly miss? Oh gosh, where do I begin? I mean, everything, you know, besides those listed, right? Those listed are what we consider property specific. It's like, hey, if you're an investor, you know, you have those. But as real estate investors, a large number, or if not the majority of us, also work out of our home, right? I know very few, if any, investors who actually go out and rent an office space just to manage or deal with their investment portfolio of rental properties. But I still see missed time and time again, investors not claiming a legitimate home office deduction. And that's one of those that we consider a really low-hanging fruit. Why? Because we all live somewhere, whether you own your primary home or if you're just renting your primary home. In both situations, you can claim home office expenses to reduce your taxable income as long as the home itself has a room or a space that's dedicated to the use 
dedicated for your real estate investing business. So in other words, it can't be like, oh, I'm just managing my properties from my dining room table or my living room couch, right? But if you have a little alcove or you have a separate bedroom, that's where your home office is. I would definitely claim that. And I think that's just one of many overhead expenses that people miss. And part of the home office is being missed is due to, I think, misconceptions. And also part of it, probably the fault of some tax advisors, because I still come across investors all the time who say, oh, I do have a home office, but my tax person doesn't want me to take it. They think it's, you know, I'm going to be audited. That's something that's maybe true about 20 or so years ago. You know, when working from home was not really a thing, like maybe couldn't be done. But especially nowadays, I mean, the vast majority of people are working from home, especially for real estate investors. That was exactly going to be one of my next questions was about that red flag for the IRS. I know from at least what I know, the little I know about taxes and what I've read is that, like you said, about 20 years ago, maybe a decade or two ago, when it wasn't that common for people to work remote and technology wasn't where it is today, that might've been a red flag for the IRS to maybe do an audit or something along those lines. But today, I mean, so many people are working from home. So I don't think it's necessarily going to be a huge deal. How about utilities? Can we write off a portion of our utilities as part of that home office expense? Yeah, definitely. And this is kind of the concept of the home office, right? Because you can, you know, as a homeowner, for example, you can always write off your mortgage interest and property taxes on your personal return, whether or not you have a home office. But what we typically cannot write off individually are things like utilities, internet, if we pay someone to do cleaning of our house, if we have security systems, our nest, a lot of those things we can't write off because they're just personal in nature. And so that's the benefit is when you're a real estate investor, you're in the business of investing in rental properties. Then when you're using your home, a portion of all those things that we just talked about can then become tax deductible as part of your home office expense. And yeah, I know sometimes people think, well, I don't, do I really pay that much in utilities? Do I really pay that much in security or cleaning? But if you add it up over the entire year and you add up all those different amounts, they are pretty significant. You know, it's not uncommon for us to see 5,000, 10,000 or more in home office expenses. And the more expensive or the higher cost of living for you where you are, the larger the potential home office. So someone living in New York, it might be like a really small apartment, but it still might be a huge home office deduction just by the fact that their mortgage is high or their rents are very high that they're paying. I think it's also just a good habit. Like if maybe now it's small, But as you scale as an investor, maybe your house gets bigger, whatever the case is, that expense could become even more, even larger, a more material piece as part of your tax deduction. So I think it's really about building a really good habit. The concept too of IRS auditing something like this, again, that was something years and years ago. And in fact, several years ago, the IRS has made it easier for people to claim home office expenses where they kind of give you a standard rate, right? Where if you didn't keep receipts, you can still claim up to, I think it's like $5 per square foot for your home office expense. We can't really hold on to a lot of these outdated data and outdated thoughts when it comes to tax filing. And also just as importantly too, even if something is a little bit higher audit risk, it doesn't mean you should not take advantage of it, right? As long as you have a legitimate home office, you have a legitimate business expense, I would certainly take it because it's allowable by law. And it's something that you actually incurred, right? We're not making up write-offs or anything. So be it if it's a higher audit risk, if you're audited, as long as you can prove your position, there's really nothing to be afraid of. 
And when it comes to proving things, talk to us a bit about the receipts. You mentioned receipts. I know that's an important part. Do we have to save receipts for every single thing we do? Where is the balance there? Yeah, great question. I know such an unpopular topic, right? People like to hear about, oh, I'm an investor and I saved five, ten thousand dollars in taxes. And then when you start talking about receipts, it's like, boo, nobody wants to do it. But you know, earlier you mentioned the word habit. I love that word when it comes to taxes and tax planning, running real estate business in general. Receipts is one of those things that we always recommend for investors to get into the habit of keeping them. And by keeping them, we don't necessarily mean you have to keep those little thin pieces of paper somewhere in your pocket or in your purse. But a lot of times you can just simply take a picture, right? If you go somewhere, you have a meal with someone, um, when you sign the check, just take a picture of that so you can have record of when it was and what, you know, what was ordered for that business meal. The majority of the time for those receipts, what I do as best practice is every month or so, I will then move those images on my cell phone over to a folder. And then that's pretty much it. I don't look at it. I don't chronologically organize it or anything, but I know it's there in a folder, everything for April, 2022. And the reason for that is if I'm audited, it might not be two, three years from today. And by then I probably don't know what I spent money on, who did I eat with and all that good stuff. And so if I'm audited, I can then go to that folder and pull up my receipt and figure out, okay, here's my proof for what I did. But because the audit risk of most taxpayers are very, very low, it's just as simple as it sounds. You take a picture of the receipt, you file it away. We don't have to do anything meticulous to then you know, further document a lot of those things. I'm so thankful for technology, especially in this realm, because if I had to do this a decade ago before a lot of this technology came around, I probably wouldn't do it. I'd probably just say, forget all this small stuff. I'd only do the big ones. But I mean, like you said, it's so easy. What I do is I just take a picture of it on my phone and I have Google Drive right on my phone. Most people should have access to Google Drive. I just upload it right into there, name it the date of the transaction or the give something that that I know if I have to go back and find it, what credit card it was spent on, who the merchant was, whatever the case is. And then I have all this, this whole folder with all of my receipts. Now, if I ever need one, I can go back and find it. And there's even a lot of times you could search within a photo album or software and it can actually read what's in your receipts. So like, if you know you yep. need to find a specific transaction, you could just search it and it'll actually pull up that same receipt. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, it's so, you know, it's a lot easier, right? And I think we're really beyond the days of being afraid of receipts, you know, paper copies. A lot of times now receipts are even emailed to you, which, you know, you can archive pretty quickly. You know, there are rules of, you know, receipts are under a certain dollar amount. You don't really have to worry about it just for best practice, for getting to the habit, right? As an investor, instead of learning how to you know, memorize all the rules of what receipts do I keep, do I not keep, the best habit to get into is just keep all receipts. Because if you're audited, IRS asks for a, a $5 receipt and you just happen to have it, you're going to look really, really great, right? What is the minimum needed for a receipt? So it depends. It's different based on food versus just repair costs, right? Repair costs and expenses, even if it's $2, technically you still have to have a receipt. And that's why for us, we just say, hey, don't worry about the minimums and maximum because it also coincides with what type of expense it is as well. We talked about utilities. Does this go, those are all things like internal of the house and you'd mentioned mm-hmm. cleaning, things like that. What about things external, like landscaping, things like that? So landscaping, unfortunately, when it comes to home office, okay, landscaping, obviously, if it's a rental property, it's completely tax deductible because it's part of your real estate property. When it comes to home office, though, landscaping, unfortunately, based on many tax court cases, they have indicated it's not part of the home office. 
taxpayers have tried to make arguments that I have clients, I have investors coming in, I need my front yard to look nice. But they've said, no, that's not really a necessity. So the gardening and things like that, typically not part of home office. For the items that are tax deductible as part of the home office deduction, they are based on a percentage of your square footage of your house that your home office takes up, correct? So if you're, let's just say your home office is 10% of the total size of your house, you can deduct 10% of the expenses. Is that how that works? Exactly, exactly. And so the bigger the office, the better the tax write-off. So we have clients who have a basement, that's their office, which is you know almost a third right, of their entire property or like a loft area. So yes, it's based. So when we're looking at household expenses that you're paying for the entire house, like interest, taxes, utilities, you're taking a percentage. On the other hand, if we're talking about office-specific expenses, for example, you have a home office and in that home office, you bought a new desk, you bought chairs, you bought computer equipment, you know, some painting, some rugs. Those are 100% tax deductible because that is used exclusively in the office itself. So it's really important to make sure you're keeping those separate. One of my favorite things about this is I house hack a duplex. And so all of the expenses and some of the utilities for the other unit are tax deductible. And then I can deduct a portion of my own for my home office. So when I look at my total tax bill from like the whole building perspective, I'm really only paying out of my pocket for a very little portion of of all the utilities and taxes. And so when you can kind of combine this tax strategy of home office expenses and really just being on top of your taxes with house hacking, I mean, it's super powerful. Yeah, definitely. And that's really the concept. You know, when we talk about tax planning, especially these overhead expenses that we're referring to. I mean, so far we're only talking about the home office, but you think about cars, right? I mean, if you're driving a car and you're using it for real estate, whether it's go to Home Depot, going to look at properties, visiting existing properties, meeting with investors, going to the bank, then part of your car expenses become tax deductible as well. And from a planning perspective, we're always trying to look for ways to shift some of these personal expenses, like a home, a car, a computer, a cell phone, and trying to shift as much of that as legitimately possible into business deductions using rental real estate. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, My wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? 
Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet. Finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. One of my key takeaways from your book is that we need to be proactive with taxes. The book said, learning to think creatively and proactively about ways to minimize your taxes and how this applies to -to day-to-day things will help you keep more of your profit in your pocket rather than handing it over to the IRS. How do real estate investors act proactively about their taxes? What are some things we should be doing before buying certain items and just doing generally throughout the year? You know, I mean, of course, if you buy an item for your real estate, right, you buy a property, you buy some appliances for the rental property, you, you know, you have deductions, you have depreciation. But before going into that part, the first thing that we just talked about is trying to sh- look at what are all the things you're spending money on already personally that are maybe traditionally non-deductible. And so how can we move those into legitimate business deduction portion? Going back to that word habit, right? How do we get into proactive tax planning is making tax planning part of almost like second nature. Get into the habit of asking yourself, when you spend money on something, is this something that is ordinary and necessary for me to have as a real estate investor? And some of those answers are going to be really easy, right? If you go to Costco, you buy some paper, you buy stamps, you sign up for a real estate course, or you buy a tax book, you'll know it's for real estate. There's no other reason really why you're, you're having those things. And so if the answer is yes, make sure you track the receipts, make sure you're somehow capturing that cost or paying with your LLC you know, credit card. There's going to be things that are unsure, right? If maybe I'm going somewhere with my friends, I'm probably going to talk to them about real estate. I'm not really sure if this trip is going to be tax deductible or not. And those are times when your tax advisor will come in, right? So before you plan that trip, before you spend that money, send them a quick email, give them a quick call and say, here, here's what I'm thinking of doing. It's going to be a pretty significant amount of money. What do you think? You know, Should I pay with my LLC? Do you think it's a business deduction? Because then that puts your tax advisor on alert and they'll be able to help you. Maybe this trip for Robert ordinarily is not tax deductible, but are there things that could be done before you leave for the trip? to make sure that you have more of that become tax deductible? Are there real estate activities or things that we can pre-plan 
so that we create the fact pattern to have at least part of this become tax deductible. Not for everyone to just become like a tax geek or anything, but you know, it's kind of a little voice in the back of your head like, hey, is this something I think that might be real estate? Because one of the downsides and what I think, going back to your first question of why people miss out on tax savings, is we tend to have this thought that I can't take a deduction. This is probably not legitimate. And if you already have made that decision that you can't write it off, then you won't write it off because your tax advisor probably will never see that expense, right? They were not with you. They didn't know you went here or spend money on that. And so you're sort of the first line of defense. If you don't know the answer, that's when it's a good time to just reach out and, and find out. You're mentioning a couple things that are your tax advisor will help with, your CPA versus what you're doing. And I've actually heard a lot of people say, oh, it's my CPA's job. They're going to take care of it. When it comes to not only what you mentioned, but just tons of tax-related items. But in your book, it says, we know that some of you may think that what we just described is the job of your CPA or tax preparer, but that would be as incorrect as saying that your doctor takes care of your body. Where does the fine line end between what is expected of someone's CPA versus what they should be doing themselves? Yeah. yeah, It's funny because we do have a lot of clients who are in the medical practice, right? It's like, hey, if your doctor says you're overweight and you you don't blame the doctor and say, well, gosh, you know, how come I'm so overweight? It's like, well, I'm the same because I, you know, I didn't take care of my body. I didn't exercise. So it's the same thing when it comes to taxes. I think a lot of people, tax time, they end up owing a lot in taxes. They'll tend to blame the CPA. My CPA did a bad job. I paid a lot in taxes. But you know, and it is a fine line, but I, you know, I kind of go back to the, you as a taxpayer, right? You're the first line of defense because you're the one spending the money. You're the ones deciding whether you get involved in the transaction. You're deciding whether you buy a rental, whether you refinance, whether you sell, right? Your CPA is not with you day to day with those things. But at the same time, it's also not your job to know all the rules. If you're selling a property, you don't have to know start to finish of a 1031 exchange or how you're going to defer the tax. The best thing to do is the role of the investor is simply to make sure that they're keeping their tax advisor in the loop, right? So you would say, hey, Amanda, here's what I'm thinking of doing. Should I sell this property for $200,000 or should I refinance? And that simple two-sentence statement can create thousands, if not tens of thousands of tax savings because then your CPA can talk to you about, okay, well, what are the tax consequences of refinancing? Maybe there's no tax. You can tap into $50,000 tax-free. And if you sold it, well, maybe you might be paying $20,000 in taxes. But if you did want to sell, can we do a 1031 exchange? And so it's the value is in the conversation that the CPA is going to give you options on what you can do. And the key here is options when it comes to planning. And planning, this is all happening before you actually implement a specific decision or investment. Like after you've sold your property, it might be too late for your CPA to say, oh, here are all the 10 things you can do. Maybe there's like one or two things you can do. But if you talk to them before selling a property, they might be able to give you 10 things that you can consider, but you still have to do it, right? If you have the ideas and you don't do it, then you're probably going to still end up paying the tax at the end of the year. Other than not being proactive, missing overhead expenses, not maybe consistently checking in with our CPA, what are the most common mistakes you see investors make and what should we be doing differently? I also sometimes come across investors who put too much focus on the tax side. And what I mean by that, and this this might sound ridiculous to some of you, but I hear this pretty frequently. People say, hey, I want to buy this piece of property and there's very little cash flow, if any. That's not the greatest deal I'm going to pay over market for it, but I think it'll give me a really great tax write-off, right? Is it something I should do? And nine times out of 10, the answer is going to be no. 
the same we we always say we don't want to let the tax tail wag the dog, right? So you never buy something, invest in something, spend money on something simply for the potential tax savings. Because first and foremost, our goal is to use our money to invest, grow our wealth, reach financial independence. And then yes, taxes is a great byproduct of all of that. Yeah, definitely something to be aware of, especially in today's market. You know, I think we're seeing a lot of multiple offers on properties. Investors are having a little bit harder time accessing deals. And so I think sometimes they try to justify that by saying, okay, well, I'm overpaying. This is not a great deal, but I'm going to get tax savings. Um, That's not a good way to start the investing journey. One of the most hotly debated and common things I hear in the real estate world, especially for new investors, is that Really, it's just this debate of whether you need an LLC or not to invest. And I know there's a legal side to this debate, but from a tax perspective, give us a rundown of the different scenarios of when we might want an LLC versus when we might not, and if one's even necessary. So I typically break that down into two different types of real estate income, because as investors, we can't just assume everybody's a landlord. There's other types, there's other ways to invest in real estate. For example, you might be someone who's flipping, right? Fix and flip, or you might be doing wholesale deals. And so for more active income, like flipping and wholesale, oftentimes having an LLC or specifically an S corporation, having an S corporation could be very beneficial because it could help to save on self-employment taxes. Of course, it's going to depend on what your flip or wholesale profit is. What other income you have? Like, do you have a job still? And how much are you making at your W 2? So, there's a lot of different factors that come into play. But if you're someone who's actively doing flip, wholesale, that type of stuff, at least have the conversation with your CPA because there could be some pretty significant tax savings. You know, as an example, someone who flipped and made $100,000, if you do that in an S corporation, you might save $7,000 or more just in taxes. And this is outside of the asset protection part of it. Of course, if you're flipping, there's risks associated with contractors going in and out and all that good stuff. The other side of the real estate realm is on the investment side. And that's if you are doing house hacking, you just have rental properties, or if you're doing the Burr method that people talk about a lot on bigger pockets, those are all rental income. So when it comes to rental income, my job is fairly easy. There's not really a, a significant difference or any difference really whether you hold your rentals personally or in an LLC, because you generally get the same tax deductions in either scenario. So the common things we talked about, you know, home office, travel, car expenses, all that, it is available regardless of whether you're holding things personally or LLC. So from the rental side, the LLC is for the most part used for asset protection purposes. And that's where a good attorney comes in. Oftentimes you're looking at the cost of the entity and weighing that against the asset protection. You know, especially for newer investors, the cost is always a concern, right? Is is the cost benefit. If it's going to cost me $800 and I'll get to protect, you know, $100,000 worth of equity, probably a really great deal. But if I'm doing these like no money down real estate where I have almost no equity, um, and I have an attorney trying to sell me a 10, 20, $30,000 entity structuring, then it's probably not worth it, right? So it does come down to investor by investor as well. A surprising piece of information that I've heard regarding LLCs is that even if minor or infrequent personal transactions are intertwined with LLCs transactions, it can actually invalidate an LLC's protections. Can you talk to us a bit about this and if it's a common problem you see in your work? 
So the issue you're talking about is、uh, considered like commingling, right? Commingling personal and entity funds and transactions, and the issue of that is not necessarily a tax one.、Um, first and foremost, it stems from the liability protection side. So if someone were to sue you and you say, "Hey, you don't have an LLC," the other party is going to say, "Well, actually, Robert has been using LLC money for his parties. He's kind of commingling everything. So the LLC really is, is you know, it's not anything different from Robert." So we're gonna pierce the corporate veil, and therefore you have no protection. So that's typically the issue that comes.、Um, and yes, unfortunately, we do see that. That's one of the reasons when it comes to entity formation, especially for newer investors, we're not looking just at the cost benefit, but also at the complexity too. So meaning, if Robert has one rental and one LLC, that's probably easy to administer, right? You know, rental income and expenses from the LLC, all the personal stuff personally. But if you happen to have bought into a, like a really complex structure where you have three LLCs by a holding company, you have another management company. Investors often get very confused. Like, where's the rental income go? How does it go to me? From the baby to me? From the holding to me? And how does the management company like? What is that doing? Right? If you're getting into a more involved entity structuring, just make sure you're okay with that complexity and you have a full understanding of how you're supposed to use it. Because otherwise, you probably just spend all this money for something like what you were mentioning. That's going to be basically invalidated because you're not doing things correctly. From the tax side, one of the things is we also recommend, you know, not as you know, live or die like the the legal side, but we do recommend that personal expenses be paid personally and not through the LLC for the same reason. You know, if you're ever audited, IRS is going to want to see the LLC bank account, and if they're seeing a lot of personal things running through it. Then they're gonna just question a lot of these expenses, right? Why is Robert? Sorry to keep using you as a bad example, but why is Robert paying for all you know personal gym through the LLC? So in that same vein, how do reimbursements work? If we have to pay for something, we don't have our business LLC's credit card or debit card or something. We have to pay personally. Is it okay to transfer money to ourselves as a reimbursement, or is there a process specific that we should go through to make sure that this is a really clean cut line? Yeah, exactly, and that's exactly how you do it. So let's say,、um, and this is, happens a lot more with newer entities, right? I have all these real estate expenses before the entity was formed, so now I have entity. How do I reimburse myself? So yes, personally, you can move money to the LLC. It's considered owner contributions, and then what happens is the LLC will then reimburse you. I mean, it sounds ridiculous, I know, but that is the process. So then the LLC reimburses you for legal fees or marketing fees, and the expense then is claimed on the LLC return. Now the money has been returned to Robert's personal account, so those are not as problematic as the reverse, which is what I was saying is the LL, you know, is the LLC money being used directly to pay for Robert's gym membership or something like that. If it's done the correct way, an investor's children and potentially even their spouse can be part of their tax write-off. Explain to us the creative ways to write off our kids and potentially our girlfriends and boyfriends and wives. Yeah, we always talk about writing off kids, but yes, it's absolutely we're seeing people who write off their significant other as an unmarried, right? Girlfriends, boyfriends, aging parents who might be semi-retired. The whole concept of that is if you are helping out someone financially, anyways. If you just you had a friend who needs money, you gave them money. It's not a tax deduction. It's just a gift. But if instead of just giving out the money, you had these family members or friends work for you in your real estate business. Helping you with marketing, helping you with tenant turnovers, or with your cleaning out your short-term rentals. If they're doing work to help in the real estate business, 
then what you can do is pay them for those work done. And then that money that was paid becomes a legitimate tax deduction. You know, there's really nothing magical about kids per se, right? Could really be anyone that you are helping out financially who can work for you in the interim, take a tax write off for it. Now, if it's someone that, you know, if you have a significant other, like a girlfriend who's helping out, but let's say they're in a higher tax bracket than you, then you might not want to income shift that way. Then you just want to call it a gift, right? Because then you're just maybe creating more income and, you know, taxable income for them. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Do you guys ever feel overwhelmed with all that's going on in the markets and feel like you just can't keep up with the day-to-day news headlines? Today's show sponsor, Yahoo Finance, is my go-to solution to keeping up with today's top news and stay informed with what is happening globally. With Yahoo Finance, I'm able to see the biggest trends and biggest movers in the stock market, what is happening with interest rates, major geopolitical events, and much more. If it wasn't for Yahoo Finance, I would have no idea that Tesla is laying off 10% of their staff or why iPhone shipments are down 9% year over year. Yahoo Finance also has a number of other cool features, including a tool that lets you link in all of your investment accounts, analyst ratings and independent research, as well as the ability to create customized charts. Yahoo Finance is one of my favorite tools I use in my investing toolkit, and it's what I use each morning to kick off my day and stay in the loop with what's happening in the markets. Join more than 90 million monthly users today and get comprehensive financial news and analysis at yahoofinance.com. The number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi, netsuite.com slash mi, 
That's netsuite.com slash MI. All right, back to the show. I talked earlier that one of my key takeaways from your book was this idea of being proactive. I was typically reactive with my taxes rather than being proactive. But because I travel so much, the second item in your book that really stood out to me was this idea of being able to write off some travel expenses if we do it correctly and schedule meetings in a certain way and depending on what they're related to. So explain to us your strategy to write off potentially every penny of our travel expenses. The key to traveling is that you have to have what we consider predetermined business activities. We're talking about like if you went somewhere, right? If you're going somewhere with your friends on a trip, you happen to look at real estate. Well, sure, maybe you can write off some of your car rental and meals for the day that you did real, you know, you went to look at real estate. But your trip, your airfare, your hotel costs for the trip generally is not deductible. Why? Well, because you were there to have fun with friends, you happen to say, hey, this might be somewhere that I want to invest in. The alternative would be to say, before I'm leaving on the trip, what are all the real estate things that I wanted to do? Right? Am I, I'm going to schedule appointments with local realtors. I'm going to schedule meetings with local lenders, maybe meet with real estate investors locally, maybe attend a local meetup on real estate. If I have all those things in place, then, then what you're able to substantiate is that the reason I took this trip was for all these real estate things that I've arranged. If my buddy happens to be there as well, and we happen to have some fun on the weekends, that's okay, right? It doesn't mean my flight is no longer deductible. And so that's the key is making sure you have plenty of prearranged business activities before booking that trip to be able to show you know, as much of my flight and hotel and all that is tax deductible. You know, there's a fine line between that too, because I, I also talk to people who are like, well, I'm going to be somewhere for two weeks and I really don't want to have so much real estate stuff, right? There's a fine line between how much you want to write off and how much real estate stuff you actually you know, are willing to do as well. And if I remember correctly, there's a strategy where you have to sandwich your weekends if you want to spend the weekend over. So you'd have to plan for like a meeting on a Monday if you're going to stay until Monday for you know, over covering the weekend, if you want that to be tax deductible. Can you explain that a little bit for us? Yeah, yeah. So they don't require, you know, there's not a requirement that you have to work on the weekends. So one of the questions we get is like, okay, if I if I'm visiting my properties, let's say Thursday, Friday, can I stay over the weekend, go home on Monday, and then still deduct my hotels for the weekend? And so generally, the answer to that would be no, because there's really no business purpose as to why you were there over the weekend, right? So sure, you can still do all that, but those nights wouldn't really be deductible because there's not any business associated. But on the other hand, if you had something on Friday, you have also something on Monday, then you know, it becomes unreasonable to say, hey, you know, I'm going to have you fly from Florida back to California on the weekend and then fly back again. And so a reasonableness person says, sure, you can stay over on the weekend because naturally you also have more stuff to do on the following Monday as well. So that's where that, that weekend sandwich concept comes from. How do we balance this dynamic of maximizing our tax deductions versus showing a profit on our tax returns so that we could still qualify for mortgages? That's kind of the dynamic that I'm running into is like, I want to pay as little as taxes as possible. I want to pay as little taxes as possible. I mean, that's kind of one of the big pieces of real estate, right? Is all the tax benefits that we get. But at the same time, if you're full-time self-employed or a real estate investor, you know that you need to show some profit to be able to qualify for a mortgage other than just depreciation. So where do we go? What, like, what do we do in this respect? How do we balance this dynamic? I think, I mean, the first step is to make sure you're working with a you know, mortgage broker who works a lot with investors. 
because part of their job is to explain your tax return to their underwriters, right? The underwriters, you know, the ones making the decisions on the loans. And there are things in there that reduce taxable income, but don't necessarily hurt your borrowing ability. So some of the ones like you talked about, like depreciation, as an example, if you're working with a good underwriter or mortgage broker, they understand that's not a real cash outlay. So that although it saves you taxes, it doesn't reduce your income for debt to income ratio. Other common ones, like we talked about today, car and home office expense, right? Home office, when you're applying for a loan, they are already taking that into consideration, the mortgage you're paying on your home or the rent that you're paying on your home. So the fact that you are claiming a home office, they shouldn't count that against you again, because those are already expenses they know you have. Same thing for a car, right? They all, if you have a car payment, they already are factoring that debt. So again, the broker being able to explain that to the underwriter. So these are things that are saving you money but not necessarily hurting your debt to income ratio. For, we do see investors where even after all that, so, so you know, depreciation, home office, car expenses, maybe even like 401k contributions for anyone, you know, self-employed people, if you're making retirement contributions to reduce taxes, that's a discretionary item. You can choose to make it or not make it. And so those are also things that shouldn't hurt your borrowing ability. But even if, you know, sometimes even if after all that, there's still just still not enough income to get under a you know, property loan that you want. That's where it becomes more of a business decision, right? You can say, oh, and typically the way we approach it is to say, okay, here's your tax return based on everything you could legitimately deduct. And here's the refund you'll get. Send it to your mortgage broker and let's see what they can do. And so they might come back and say, okay, well, if you want to get this loan, I have to show another you know, $10,000 worth of income and they'll get you $100,000 more of loan, then it's, it becomes a business decision. Like, am I going to forego writing off my marketing or forego writing off money that I'm paying to my girlfriend or something, right? Just so I can get another $100,000 of loan. And in exchange, I know my refund will be two, $3,000 less. Right? You know, we've seen that as well. It's not the most ideal, but if getting that $100,000 loan is going to get you a great property, then it might be worth it. So just to clarify, we can withhold deducting anything we want, but we can't go, obviously we can't make up expenses to reduce or increase our deductions and reduce our tax expense, but we can withhold things. Is that no matter what, it's pretty much legal and, and okay? Well, from I'm only speaking from the tax perspective. I think there's legally on the loan side, there's probably different laws surrounding that, right? Outside the taxes. For example, like you can't not claim mortgage interest or property taxes or insurance, right? Those, I mean, those are things that you have for sure incurred them. You have to claim it. But things like maybe you bought a tax book, you went to a real estate course. There's nothing that says you have to claim it. You can say it's not really related to my real estate. I mean, I'm just, you know, trying to better my investment, but I don't see it as a business expense. So I'm not going to claim it as such. I don't see the IRS having an issue with it, certainly. I think there's certain things that you can make an argument that it's personal in nature, therefore you're not going to write it off. But then there's other things that you really can't apply this test to, like interest, taxes, insurance. Those are clearly expenses you have for your rental properties. Most things we've talked about so far have come from your beginner tax book, which is the first book in your two-part series, where the second book is about more advanced tax strategies. In the advanced book, you explain common retirement investing tax traps and how to avoid them. Break down those ideas and strategies for us. Uh, retirement. So yeah, it's really interesting because 
for people who work a W-2 job and someone who's been at a W-2 for years, a big bulk of liquidity and in their investable cash is actually in the retirement account. And so what I often hear people ask is, hey, can I liquidate my retirement account and use that money for real estate? One of the downsides of doing that, and that, you know, is that one of the reasons it's a big mistake is because when you liquidate retirement account, you have to pay taxes on it. In addition, if you're not of retirement age, you also have to pay penalties on top of it. So we've seen some you know, people who lose up to 50% or more of that money just to taxes by pulling money out of retirement and using it for real estate. The better way to move retirement money to real estate is just to invest in the retirement directly. And that's through self-directed investing. So self-directed investing simply means that instead of taking money out of my retirement, my retirement account is going to directly invest in real estate, whether it's a rental property or be part of a syndication or I'm going to be a note investor. You can do it directly inside of the retirement account. We've actually had a couple episodes here on the show all about self-directed IRAs. So if you're interested in hearing more about how you can actually invest directly in real estate using your retirement funds, go back and check out some of the self-directed IRA episodes that we have. They've We've done deep, deep dives into all of the different aspects of those accounts. Amanda, before we give a handoff to where people can find you, I'd like to wrap up the show by taking a few minutes and turning the tables and letting the guest actually ask me a question. So what question do you have for me? Oh, I love this. This is the first time I've been asked that. Well, I want to know what has been the single best tax strategy that you've used to save on your taxes? Or is that too much to share? No, that's that's totally fine. The It's actually very relevant right now because what happened was I purchased an RV. So you might not know this, Amanda, but a lot of the listeners know that I've got into RV rentals as kind of a spin on real estate and also kind of like a short-term rental kind of strategy. And so at least according to my CPA, again, I'm not a tax professional. This is just what I've received as information from my, my CPA is that because of bonus depreciation this year and the RV being used for a rental business, it is fully deductible this year. And so my $60,000, $65,000 RV that I purchased provided me with $60,000 worth of depreciation in the first year. Of course, I'm not going to have any depreciation next year or the years after that, but at least this year, it reduced my taxable income by $60,000, which is obviously a really big tax savings. And that one vehicle alone provided a much larger tax deduction than all of my rental properties combined. And not that I have a huge portfolio, but still six or seven units didn't even equal close to what this RV did. And again, it's bonus depreciation. It's kind of a one-off situation. Next year, I believe it's only going to be 50%. So it's going to go down a little bit, but still it was that was the biggest, I think, tax savings or tax strategy that I've used so far. Awesome. I'm so glad I asked that question because I don't think I know other investors utilizing that. But yeah, bonus depreciation is 100% for 2021, right? The return you're talking about. Also for 2022, still 100%. So still a good year if you wanted to add more to that business. And then next year, it's it's scheduled to phase down to 80% still. So still pretty high even for next year. Oh, good. So it's even, so 2022 will be 100 and then 23 will be 80? Yeah. Yep. Oh, that's good. That's better than I thought. I thought it was going down to 50, but I hadn't really (laughs) researched it too much yet. But yeah, well, I mean, if I'm going to get 100% again, I might have to buy another RV this year. (laughs) At least one, maybe maybe two or three. 
Well, Amanda, thank you very much for coming on the show, sharing all your tax advice and experience. I really appreciate it. I know the audience is going to gain a lot of value from it. And I know we answered a lot of questions that real estate investors have about their taxes. For those who want to learn more about you, connect with you, maybe even have you do their taxes or read your books, where's the best place to find your materials and connect with you? Yeah. So our books can be found on Amazon. It's called Tax Strategies for the Savvy Real Estate Investor. And then we also have, like you said, the second volume, which is more advanced tax strategies. You can find them on on Amazon or also on the Bigger Pockets bookstore. And uh, our company website is keystonecpa.com. It's K-E-Y-S-T-O-N-E-C-P-A.com. And uh, that's the best place to check us out. For any of you who are you know, tax geeks like me, there are a lot of proposed tax changes coming down the pipeline right now. And so we're always constantly doing webinars to provide people with updates on what's coming and strategies surrounding that. So check it out. We also have a free downloadable ebook. If you don't want to buy one from Amazon, you can get kind of the short ebook version of it on our website as well to download that there. So those are the best places. And I'm also on social media as well. I will put links to all of Amanda's resources in the show notes for anybody that's interested in checking them out. I highly recommend at least the beginner book. If you want to go into the advanced one, I recommend that one too. But I I really recommend the beginner one. I really, really enjoyed it. I actually picked up I'm not going to name the book, but I picked up a different book, not by Amanda, on tax strategy that's very, very popular. And I didn't like it very much because I loved Amanda's beginner book so much. So Mm. I highly recommend you guys go check it out. And anything else that Amanda has going on, I'll put that in the show notes below. Amanda, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Robert. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Real Estate Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.